0: Good afternoon to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Where I'm at, it's uh, raining uh, like cats and dogs outside, but considering last month we were pretty much bone dry where I live, it's good to have all this rain now. Uh, Of course, you still have to be safe when driving outside in it, but uh, nonetheless, it's nicer to have rain than to still be in a state of drought. But anyways, uh, we're back on the air talking about Michael Schumacher's the mighty fits the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald today's podcast uh, we're going to talk about the uh, final uh, leg of the um what do you call it not so much the loading process but everything that um went behind the scenes um before the Edmund Fitzgerald um sets out for uh sail on Lake Superior to her um ultimate destination so we're Focusing really on uh, November 9th of 1975. So we're going to lead off with this uh, question here about uh, Ernest McSorley. I've mentioned a good deal about him uh, from some previous podcasts, and all of it's been good, uh, relevant information. What did Captain McSorley pride himself greatly on? Now, when I ask this question, it sounds like To the rest of you, that you know, when one prides themselves on something, it seems like maybe that individual's bragging or that individual's taking, um, having too much arrogance about, oh, look at me, I can do this, and the rest of you can't do that. No, this is actually the opposite. Uh, Captain McSorley prided himself when it came to delivering his cargo in good shape, to arriving on time, but doing all this not just so much efficiently as possible, but doing so without having to spend an arm and a leg. And when you are uh, the captain, not just of any laker freight ship, but when you're the captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald, you want to um, do everything there is to make sure that cargo is delivered in good shape, especially the taconite, but you also want to make sure that you are also uh, satisfying the needs of the uh, company for whom you're working for, in this case being Bay Norton, who, has, uh, who owns the Fitzgerald. Of course, Northwestern Mutual Life also has a stake in it. But uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, when you're the captain of a big freighter ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald, this isn't about doing whatever you want to do on your time. You have to do it on everyone else's time. So delivering cargo in good shape and doing so on time was also a matter of economics and survival. And how so? Well, if the cargo was not delivered in the least expensive manner, nor, nor did the delivery go as quick as possible, the company who could sponsor any vessel, in this case, case Bay Norton, could replace the current captain with someone else who could do the job better. So in other words, you can't do this on your terms. You have to go by what the people above you are telling you that you need to do. There is a reason why you have been named the captain of the ship. Uh, you need to do your job, otherwise they'll find someone else who can do it. So basically, this is not a job where you you know, come and just do whatever you want to do when you feel like it and please to do so. No. Captain McSorley could be best described as a heavy-weather captain. What is exactly a heavy-weather captain? There's no true definition for it, but in the eyes of others, Captain McSorley being a heavy-weather captain um, could be best described as the following. One who is willing and able to guide a ship through stormy conditions. Is that a good thing? Well, yes, because when you're out on the Great Lakes, you have to be prepared for any kind of weather, especially come November. And as I'll mention um within the next podcast session about the gales of November and just how um serious the gales of November are um can can be known um in that time in this time of year, being late fall. So, Yes, you have to be willing to be able to guide your ship through, a stormy, through stormy conditions, big and small. But at the same time, Captain McSorley also had great respect for, um, for nature. Well, not just nature, but for Mother Nature. So, yes, you don't want to be reckless out on the high seas. And, of course, when we think of high seas, we tend to think of the Atlantic Ocean and commercial fishing. But there are high seas, even on the Great Lakes. So, uh, as I said earlier, uh, November is known for severe storms. And what I mean by severe storms, I'm not talking about thunderstorms and lightning or hail. On the Great Lakes, you know, we hear about lake effect snow sometimes happening in late October at the start of November. That's the kind of severe storms that can happen. And these storms can creep up without a moment's notice. So, in the end, how many hours did it take for the Fitzgerald to be completely loaded? Does anybody want to take a guess? Was it above 10 hours or below 10? The answer is below 10, but it took just under 6 hours to load all the um, cargo. And we're not just talking cargo left and right, but it was the taconite, or should I say the taconite pellets? So... The ship is also carrying about 50,013 gallons. I didn't even know about this kind of fuel oil, but it's called the number six fuel oil. The dock crew by now is beginning to fasten down the hatch clamps. The ship's draft is about 27 feet 6 inches at the stern, being to the back, and then 27 feet 2 inches at the bow. So everything's got to be lined up properly. As I said from a previous podcast, you can't just dump cargo wherever you want to put it. It's not like loading a car when your family's taking a vacation. Uh, this is a very, very delicate process because if cargo is not loaded properly, the ship, or any ship for that matter, can run the risk of, um, of sustaining uh, damage, big and small, that could... Um, also uh, cause a lot of uh, you know other losses like economic loss for uh, not delivering cargo on time and then leaving the company who sponsored your ship in the red. In other words, they have a deficit now they're dealing with, and how do they make up for the money not just for cargo loss but to repair uh, the uh, damages that could have been avoided. So there again, ca- uh, loading cargo, as I said from a previous podcast, is very essential to a ship's um, well-being. So the Fitzgerald's route on November 10th of 1975 through Lake Superior, and given that she's uh, currently in Superior Wisconsin at this time, which is in the western, it's right around that westernmost edge of Lake Superior. Duluth, though, is the furthest you can go on the western waters of the lake. But as for the route the Fitzgerald's going to take, Uh, She's going to take a, what you call, she's going to journey around the northern part of the lake, but then spend the rest of the day going in a northeasterly direction before heading southeast to the Sault Ste. Marie Locks. So remember, this this is in the days before modern day GPS technology here. So, you know, the Fitzgerald's got to go a certain direction. She just doesn't go where the captain feels it's best to take her, you know, the captain has to know, okay, what areas, what's the best route to go and, and the safest so that I'm not running into anything like a shoal, I'm not running, going into shallow waters. Uh, this is, this is you, you've got to know how to plan because you just, we're not talking from the days when our Europe, the European explorers um, navigated, we're, we're well past that time. Now, what was the Fitzgerald's ultimate port destination? Was it in Canada or in the United States? Well, the answer is in the United States. It's in Detroit, Michigan. And the trip from Superior, Wisconsin, to Detroit, Michigan, does anybody want to know how many miles that is? And we're, talking, we're not talking uh, driving a car, people, here. Remember, we're on the ship. We're on the water. It's going to be a 700-mile journey. And this journey would take just over two days. So 700 miles is a lot of terrain to cover. And interesting enough, when you look at a map of Michigan and you see where Detroit is, Detroit is not far from the Michigan-Ohio line. And the city in northwest Ohio that is closest in terms of major city to Detroit is Toledo, Ohio. And what do both of those cities have in common? They share Lake Erie. Lake Erie, yes, goes as far uh, west as Toledo, Ohio, but then it skirts just north into Detroit, Michigan. And the city on the Canadian side that shares Lake Erie in terms of uh, international uh, bridge and uh, international water is Sarnia, Ontario. So can you imagine now being on a 700-mile journey? But you know what, for many of these um crewmen, this is nothing new. They've done this stuff for many years. Now, what I do find worth sharing is, uh, the following. We're going to talk about some of the men who were on the Fitzgerald. There might be other men whom I will, uh, discuss in later podcast sessions, but I do think it is important to, uh, discuss about some of the, uh, crewmen who, uh, who, yes, okay, maybe didn't have the same rank as Captain Ernest McSorley did, but they are also responsible for playing a vital role on this ship, but I think they also have a story to tell as well. So the first uh, crew person we're going to discuss is Bob Rafferty. He was a steward, and we're not talking um, flight attendants on an airplane, people, but uh, in terms of stewardesses or a steward, <laughs> he is a, a steward in the sense that he is a Head cook, and he is from Toledo, Ohio. And as I mentioned from an earlier podcast, there were a handful of men, including uh, Captain Ernest McSorley, who um, hailed from Toledo, even though he was originally from Ogdensburg, New York. But uh, about six of the 29 crewmen from the Fitzgerald were from Toledo. Mr. Rafferty is about 62 years old at the time the Fitzgerald will be embarking on this voyage, but of course. To the rest of um, the Great Lakes shipping industry, nobody would have thought in their wildest dreams that this voyage would be sadly her last. So, at age sixty-two, he is Mr. Rafferty is very well liked by those whom he served, and not just serving in general, but by being the cook, he um, he is really best known for um, baking breads, pies, and cakes. I think it's good to know that you know it's one thing to be a cook on a ship, but I think it's good to make stuff that's homemade because um it has a better, you know, taste to it. It it probably doesn't have a lot of, you know, process uh stuff in it or preservatives. Uh you're eating stuff that's homemade and of course when you're on the ship everybody has a job to do, so you're going to be working off what's been um, not only been cooked, but what you've uh, consumed as well. So, Mr. Rafferty, you know, it's interesting enough though that um, this uh, appointment of his was not a um how do i how do i call it he was not um he's filling in believe it or not i think that's the best way to describe it. It turns out that the head primary cook who was uh, uh, who went by the name or his name was richard bishop he was out of commission due to medical conditions um in Regarding bleeding ulcers, so Bob Rafferty was not supposed to have been on this um, journey, but he mm-hmm. was willing to uh, fill in uh, for mr. Bishop and you know here's a good example of where even when you're not on the schedule, and even though yes you have spent many years on the ship on the um, Great Lakes, you will do things to help uh, fellow comrades out even no matter how well you know them you will. Be asked sometimes to fill in, and this is a good example of where you probably don't want to burn bridges either. Because, say if Mr. Rafferty was sick, wouldn't he want someone to fill in for him? Absolutely. Here's a, a question that uh, really struck me hard: Did Mr. Rafferty feel good about this trip? You know, I would think it's safe to say most people would feel good about this trip. I mean, they know. What November brings, there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously, but, you know, over time, most people get used to it. But as for Mr. Rafferty, no, he didn't really feel good about this trip. He felt very uncomfortable, but he but just wasn't sure why. The feeling itself wasn't fear itself. But his feelings of, of uncertainty hit him really at the very end of October when leaving out on the Fitzgerald, so I should take it back here real quick. He was already on the Fitzgerald, even in October. And this feeling occurred when he was, had, take, had taken part on a run from Silver Bay, Minnesota, to Ashtabula, Ohio. During this time, he sent a postcard from Silver Bay to his wife, which said the following. This is in quotes. May be home by November 8th. However, nothing is certain best way to sum it up is this. There are no 100% guarantees, especially come November. And how so? The weather. And that will be talked uh, about in the next podcast. But think about it, people. Yes, this man agreed to fill in for, uh, for Richard Bishop, who was sick. And it's not just the fact that he filled in for this man, but just knowing, gosh, here I am late in the season now. With all that's going on, and what November is known for on the Great Lakes, anything can happen in a short matter of time. So this is this is the risk people take. And there's, I guess the best way to sum it up is that there's a 50% chance that come the time shipping season ends in November and you've completed that last uh, voyage, you'll come home alive. And sadly, there's a 50% chance you may not because of a storm that could... Um, not only destroy the ship but could um but could result in loss of life that's how um that's how unpredictable mother nature can be around all five great lakes during november during the time of november or the month of november for that matter this fellow here uh the, the next fellow we're going to talk about is a man named mike armaghost and i'll mention him a little bit more towards the very end But he was the Fitzgerald's third mate and had been working on ships since 1957. And I found it interesting why he preferred to work on uh, freighters, not just freighters, but Laker ships. Working on Laker ships meant, in his eyes, meant better money. And apparently it did. How much more money, I'm not sure. But something tells me that in another podcast session or two, I might be able to provide... The audience uh, or I should say my listeners with um information on how much the average um, person who served aboard a uh, laker ship would make um, per hour uh, based off of their uh, position now, these two gentlemen um, here, I thought were very, very well worth mentioning because these two men. Went through, they went through a great deal of tragedy in their life, but thank heavens they found one another because if they hadn't, I'm not sure how these two men would have made it through life. The first gentleman, well, the, their names are the following uh, Ransom Cundy and Frederick Beecher. As I said a moment ago, these two men were very close friends, but they became very close friends through their work. On the Edmund Fitzgerald, but recent events that each of these men had had dealt with not only were they deeply impacted by these events but they were brought brought together one on one not what I mean one on one is that they were brought together the two of them to help uh, look after one another let 's start with um, Ransom Cundy. Now that's not his real name, but he goes by Ray as his real name. He served as a watchman on the Fitzgerald. He had known nothing else but life aboard ships. He served in the Marine Corps during World War II and even fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima. What does that tell you right there? This man um, had seen it all. He was the most popular crewman on every ship he served. He was the kind of person you could turn to if one needed to get something off their chest to needing a basic cheering up. What, was, what event changed um, Mr. Cundy's life? It was on March 30, 1974, when one of his daughters, who was 26 years old at the time, she was shot to death by her husband in a gruesome murder-suicide and to make matters worse, there were three children left behind. The death of Mr. Cundy's 26-year-old daughter left him very sad, per what one of his oldest, per what one of his older daughters had described. I can't imagine. You know, it's one thing to lose a child to, you know, cancer or to a a medical illness. Say where the doctors had done everything there was, and that the doctors did everything they could, and to the best of their capabilities in terms of saving a child's life. But to lose a child to uh, gun violence, in this case uh, domestic violence, uh, I don't know how any parent could get over that. Of course, I'm not sure what happened to the husband. Hopefully he was sentenced uh, to jail and all. But the bottom line is for uh, Mr. Cundy, this um, had a profound impact on him. Now, as for um, Frederick Beecher, of course, he went by Fred Beecher he was He knew a great deal about grief and its effects Might as well we might as well wonder why wasn 't this fellow a um, guidance counselor that 's a good question right there. Well, yes, one can know about grief and its effects, but it might not automatically qualify them as a guidance counselor but as for Mr. Beecher, he knew how anger itself could control one's life if the individual did not go about helping themselves properly or did not um, do whatever it was necessary to just get the basic help. Well, what, um, how was Mr. Beecher impacted in his life? Well, he lost a loved one being his wife, who died not long after giving birth to their son. Of course, when I think of um, families and losing um, not just a child in childbirth, I often think of colonial days. Not to get off track, but that's usually what I think of. I think of oftentimes a child dying in the 18th and 19th century, either at the time he or she is born or a couple of days after, or a mother who uh, died during childbirth at that time, but sadly, this even was still going on in the 20th century. Unfortunately, it probably still happens today, but as for Mr. Beecher, he was left a widower with an infant son, and obviously Mr. Beecher has to work in order to provide for his son, but Mr. Um, Beecher's son was moved around from one foster home to another because of Fred's being away all the time. Now, I know one would think, well, why didn't Mr. Beecher find another job? Well, I mean, that's a good question right there, but we also have to remember, too, that for many of these men, I think it's fair to say that they uh, started out At a very early age in their life, perhaps after graduating from high school, to begin a career in the maritime industry, most notably on the Great Lakes. Most of these fellows probably did not know of anything else uh, better to pursue, or perhaps many of them were following in other family members' footsteps who had also had careers on the Great Lakes. And perhaps too, and Many of the towns that these men came from, the, the, the type of jobs available all concentrated on, on the waters, being that of the Great Lakes. So it's not like Mr. Beecher could have just said, okay, I need to make a career switch. I'm going to just, I'm gonna have to move 30 or 50 miles out of town to start a new life. For many of these people, that just was not available. So anyways, um, Mr. Beecher's life sadly did spiral out of control as a result of his wife dying, and he did resort to alcohol. Well, Fred Beecher did get help, and so did Ray Cundy. I'm not sure if they, you know, I, I would imagine that they did seek, you know, personal help, but the two of them had each other, which was probably the most important thing. They became very close friends through personal tragedies. They spent quality time with one another regularly. And that is so important, because if they didn't have each other, I'm not sure they probably would have even been alive. And that does happen with people. Mr. Beecher himself was a porter. He along with another fellow on the Fitzgerald, being Nolan Church, were responsible for ensuring that nobody went hungry, so in other words. While they may not have been the head cooks, they were the ones serving the food to the other um, crewmen on the ship. Now, I mentioned about um, a fellow just a short while ago, Mike Armagost, or Mike Armagost. His wife, um, and the reason I'm mentioning his wife is because she, um, her name was Janice Armagost, And they had two young children. Janice Armagost had been on the Fitzgerald before and knew some of her husband's fellow crewmates. She, at first, when uh, she and Michael married, it was very hard for her to understand, not just so much to understand, but to realize what his um, work schedule was like on the Fitzgerald. This was not your everyday 9 to 5 job. Many of times, her husband would be away out on the waters, and oftentimes that meant long-term absences, but she found a way to work with it, and I would suspect many families did, because that was the way of life along these towns. Everybody knew each other, but all the families, you know, worked with one another. They were there for one another in the best of times and the hardest of times, so... I think it's, it's good to know, in a sense, that everybody was looking after each other, and from what I've read from other past shipwrecks, that when a shipwreck did occur, that resulted in loss of life on the Great Lakes, the whole town was deeply impacted by it, and the town came together to not only mourn for those who lost loved ones, but to be there for one another when it mattered most. It turns out, though, that Janice Armagost, including her two young children— would be the last people to see anyone alive on board the Edmund Fitzgerald. They were the last people on land that whom saw the Fitzgerald leave out of the dock in Superior, Wisconsin. I can't imagine uh, being in Janice Armagos' shoes, nor that of her two young children who weren't even anywhere near the age of 10. And, of course, they would have been under the assumption that, that the children would have been under the assumption that, okay, their father is going to be coming home soon because once winter arrives, shipping season ends for a while. But even Janice Armagost herself probably knew that nothing was ever certain as well. So on November 9th of 1975, the Fitzgerald departs Superior, Wisconsin at around 1.15 p.m., and was due to arrive into Detroit, Michigan around 5 p.m. on November 11th of 1975. The ship was carrying 26,013 tons of taconite. That's a lot of taconite, but hey, the Fitzgerald's been used to this. This isn't anything new. She's been setting records left and right for 17 years. I don't think the Fitzgerald herself has missed out on anything. What is the what is the Fitzgerald going to be receiving in return once arriving at Detroit? This is going to sound a little odd and strange, but I think other ships would have received this kind of stuff too. She would be receiving five bags of laundry, including a bag full of mail, on a Detroit mailboat referred to as the J. W. Westcott. Well, you've got to come back with something. But then again, if you don't come back with something, that's not always a bad thing either. What I can say, in terms of having talked about the um, the members, about some of these members who uh, crew members who were on the Fitzgerald, is that everybody aboard the ship was a family. These weren't just random individuals. Everybody worked together. Everybody looked after each other. Yes, some people may not have had the best personalities. But they did care for each other. Yes, there were those who said that while Ernest McSorley may not have always had a smile on his face, he did care about everyone. His job was making sure that business was done properly and that the objectives were constantly being met. I guess it's fair to say that there's a time to have fun, but there's also a time to be serious and to do your work. I do believe it's fair to say, too, that for many of the men who were on the Fitzgerald or those who who were on any other Laker ship along the Great Lakes, most of the men would have had military experience, like Bob Rafferty, who served in World War II, who who fought at Iwo Jima. Um, What I'm trying to say is that being aboard a Laker ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald, it's kind of like being in the military. You have to be committed to this job. You don't get to make your own schedule. You don't get to say, oh, well, I want this week off, or I'm going to have to take X, Y, and Z days off where I can't be on the ship. Okay, well, if you go about doing that, then it's very safe to say that you're going to be replaced in a heartbeat. So when you're on a ship, this isn't a one-time thing. This could be a commitment where you may have to be aboard a ship one particular ship for three to five years. Is that a bad thing? No, but the bottom line is you have a job to do. And so for the men aboard the Fitzgerald, this is like being in the military. And that commitment is essential, not just to, not just for the company you're working for, but for whom you're delivering the goods to, and also for the community as a whole. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today, and the next uh, couple of sessions—I'm not sure how many sessions it will be for uh, podcast sessions—but what I'm going to be talking about in the next session will be about the ship's final voyage, which was on November 10th. And the sh- the final voyage is going to—we're going to talk a lot about a lot of the details, not just so much about the voyage, but what the ship was, but what the Fitzgerald herself. Uh, was encountering because the, the night of November 10th is a night that um, I guess it's fair to say to those who lost loved ones on the Fitzgerald could have been a night that would live in infamy on Lake Superior. Just like, I mean, I can't make compare it to Pearl Harbor, but when Pearl Harbor happened, it was referred to as a day that would live in infamy Well, thank you for listening, and I look forward to another podcast session here soon. Stay safe and take care.